Ghost of Tsushima, Trapped, and Sabotage. This is staying in. Can I can I just say how proud I am of everyone here? Um, okay, thanks. That I think it's that. Um, that I think after one hundred over one hundred episodes, we are finally learning how to podcast properly. Um, what do you mean? I mean, you're, you're getting carried away here. I think. <laughs> Um, uh, and and I think we should be proud we should pat ourselves on the back um, because last episode the last two episodes we we created a very tense cliff cliffhangers to the episodes of what was going to happen when I spent 40 pounds of Pete's money yep that's true and this episode we're hopefully going to bring the the thrilling conclusion to a, a cliffhanger that we left at the end of well not really at the end we're still get, we're still like that's a bit we've got to even out is where we actually put the cliffhanger because <laughs> yeah. really it should it's, go to it's the taken end. us over 100 episodes to discover a cliffhanger yeah. now we just got to put now it's another 100 episodes to put the cliffhanger we in, just got to put it on the cliff edge yeah in the right place so in the last episode we had a a a, a, a hilarious debate about um where to put eggs and um that well the day after um Peter Willington of this parish uh, uh, BCC'd us all into an email um, which was sent to info at britisheggindustrycouncil.com <laughs> <laughs> um, this, this email isn't as long as I thought it was so I'm, I'm happy to read it out verbatim uh, hello there <laughs> I was wondering if you can help me on the next episode of the comedy podcast, I'm mm. part of. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, I, you need. I, I didn't want to say it's about games and that, but by the way, we've been talking about eggs. <laughs> We're going to be talking about eggs and specifically how to store them properly. He continues. I live in the UK. No chemically treated US eggs here. So you were you were buttering them up there, weren't you? Really? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. You knew how to push their buttons. <laughs> And I've always assumed that the correct place for eggs is the cupboard rather than the fridge. Mm. But the abundance of fridges <laughs> with dedicated <laughs> sections of the storage of eggs suggests that they may be better off there. Some cartons of eggs also ask customers to put the eggs in the fridge for freshness, but don't state that they categorically must be kept there. So I was hoping that the British Egg Industry Council would have the final word on the proper storage of British eggs. <laughs> Should my free-range boilies yet to be kept in the fridge? No, no, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. It's should my free-range boilies yet to be? Oh, right. Sorry. <laughs> Christ. Hopefully they read this a bit better than I did. Should my free-range boilies yet to be be kept in the fridge or is a plain old cupboard absolutely fine? All the best. Peter Willington, video games producer slash podcaster yeah i should have removed that last bit i was just like, thinking that yeah like yeah my career is now jeopardized so when we started planning for this episode we we all put in um details of what we would like to talk about because there is planning involved we got that bit right quite early on yep. and all pete put in is the word eggs so <laughs> i'm hoping well, that that this yeah. email has borne eggy fruit <laughs> I mean, I think I think we can all agree that Pete spends his leave very productively. I, I just yeah. like the fact that you know when he put in his diary, email British Council of Eggs. He he went through with it. 
I'm yeah. not knocking about. Like, I, like <laughs> we have these public services available to us. I pay my taxes like anybody else. I want to know what the egg authorities have got to say. Um, so I think I could have put eggs and then another topic, which would be how a BCC works, Chris. I do apologise. So, now, Chris, what you did is you just replied <laughs> yeah. and said, well, now I have to keep it in the edit. <laughs> and then get Outlook for Android. I don't know why you're sort of repping that stuff at the moment. <laughs> then, then, but luckily, s- lovely Sarah from the uh, from the British Egg Information Service. Also, brackets. sorry, did that did that email go to the inf- go to info <laughs> yeah, at the Egg Council? Of course it did. Yeah. Of course it did because. <laughs> Uh, right. Oh, so I was clicking reply like, all, Chris. Come on, oh, rookie I mistake. I saw it on my phone. I thought Pete was running the email passes. I didn't think he would CC us into what is a very well, important well, email. Didn't. I didn't. He I didn't, didn't Chris. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, right. So, so anyway, Sarah, Sarah from uh, the the British Egg Information Service (brackets B E I S). Um, uh, this uh, basically, she got in touch with us. And uh, said, thank you for getting in touch in regards to your query. For optimum freshness and food safety, eggs should be kept at a constant temperature below 20 degrees Celsius. To avoid the typical temperature fluctuations in a domestic kitchen, we recommend that eggs are stored in their box in the fridge. For more information, please visit egg storage and handling page. Uh, I do hope this has helped and that you continue to enjoy your yet-to-be-boiled eggs from the fridge. Oh. Kind regards, oh. Sarah. So thank you very much, Sarah, uh, for, for sending us that reply. Um, because because honestly, I always thought... And that basically, that opens up. And obviously, she did, she did provide an excellent link to egg storage and handling. Uh, a, a great... Uh, honestly, a fantastic source of how to properly store and, you know, handle eggs. Not only that, um, there was also a fantastic link in uh, in their uh, in their bio to the British Lion Eggs Instagram account, um, <gasps> which obviously I'm now following, um, and um, it has sixty two thousand followers, right? Which, I mean, that's incredible. Like that that is genuinely amazing. What, I, I wonder what kind of things are on there, Pete. Well well, okay, so there's lots of different columns of stuff. They've obviously got your basics, lunch, brunch, dinner, what you can do with eggs. <laughs> um, but then there's also there's also just really nice photos of eggs being used in all sorts of different dishes. And actually I thought, oh, this is gonna be a bit this is gonna be like a little bit naff. This is gonna be the sort of thing that they sort of chuck out to an intern who's from like the local the local secondary or something like that. But actually, it's beautifully shot. And I've now got into uh, I've now got into the idea of maybe maybe thinking about uh, trying out some more egg-related dishes. So you know what? I think my tax money. I assume it's tax money. That basically, I don't know. Um, but I think I think that's that's money well spent. So well done, British Egg Information Service. I, th- I think I think there is. Um, hopefully, Pete's enjoying some of the satisfaction that I felt when I was in. What age are you when you're in year four? Your, uh, is it uh, nine or ten? Is it? Yeah. No, no, eight or nine, isn't it? Eight or nine. Young. Yeah, I think young. Yeah, young. Because when? Oh no, it wasn't year five. When was it? Year five? Yeah, year four. Year four. It was in year four. Because when I was in year four as a kid, I ran up to my teacher, Mrs. Potter, 
and I said, nah, "No, no, this isn't no, real. Sorry. This story isn't real." <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, did she did she invent like Peter Rabbit? And... <laughs> Immediately, you've looked around your room and spotted a Harry Potter book and went, um, "Mrs. Potter." Um, and and I went and I went to her and I went, "What what what does all this funny writing mean on the outside of a pound coin?" And um, being the great teacher that she was, she didn't just give me the answer because I assumed that everyone knows now. <laughs> she said, uh, go away. <laughs> no, she said, well, why didn't you write to the banks and ask them? So as, as a very precocious eight slash nine-year-old child, I hand-wrote letters to... <laughs> and it wasn't like... And I didn't do it to, like, you know, the Coin Council of Britain or anything like that. I literally yeah. wrote to my high street bank... <laughs> That's amazing. I thought you were going to say like the Chancellor of the Exchequer or something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I I like that. I, I I that that feeling of getting in touch with like um a big governmental body or or like an important yeah, yeah. authority on a subject and getting a nice yeah. sort of personal response is Yeah. Um, there's 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 a little bit of joy in there. Yeah, it's a little bit of joy of like of like somebody actually took the time to yeah. respond to a to a nice question, which is like, yeah, it's lovely. Um, oh man, so there we are. That's the um, so basically, I guess, uh, listeners, if you've got any questions about any other sort of foodstuffs that you'd like answered from British councils <laughs> related to those things, we've got let us, in. Let us know, and I'll uh, I'll do the research. How are you guys? How are we? Actually, actually, I haven't spoken to you all that much. Uh, <laughs> so how are you doing? Oh, dear. I had a week off. I had a week off, so I'm well rested. I've seen uh, England's steepest residential hill. That's what we did on <laughs> that's our holiday. The most, that's <laughs> the most caveated attraction. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It was like, yeah. Bucket list. Uh, Ticked. Yeah, it was. It, yeah, it, well, that like, was at the top Britain's of Britain's steepest hill. Actually, well, it's not Britain's steepest hill. It's the steepest residential hill in England. In England, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the hill uh, called, Pete? It's called Vale Street. Uh, I assume people will be flocking to it soon. Um, oh yeah, you sent like a picture to us of just the the signpost of Vale Street, and I just I I, I was like. Is this is this something I should mate, know? Mate, 20, 22 degrees. Twenty two degrees. Was that the temperature? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was quite warm and muggy. The steepness of it. It was super steep, so steep. And it's it, uh, it's an amazing place in that in winter, they have to chain their cars to their houses because they slip down the hill otherwise. Oh, my god! Which is just an amazing, amazing idea. But, um, yeah, had a, had a bit of a break. Well, I, um, I uh, me and my wife, we left the house today, which is brave. Marvellous. We went to, uh, a, a, like, a food... Um, you know where we went for my uh, stag? What was it called? The Shambles in York. The Shambles in York. Well, yeah. we didn't go there, but we went to a place which is kind of like that, which is like all, and it was in it was in this covered market, and um, had loads and loads of. Next time we're all together, we're definitely going to go there because it's kind of like it's one of those places where you don't have to worry about finding a particular food that everyone will enjoy and space for everyone. It's kind of like there's Thai, there's Chinese, Korean. Indian, Mexican, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we had the most delicious Penang curry and pad thai. Uh, what's, a, what's a Penang curry? Uh, it's just like, it's like a, a, like a Thai red curry, it's sometimes called. Ooh, is it like spicy? It's like, so it's it... like a spicy red curry and it's flavoured with like holy basil. Oh, okay. 
okay that sounds quite so nice quite, so, so quite fragrant mm, yeah it's, it's gorgeous it's, it's currently my number one top curry <laughs> you say that as if like you yeah. write a blog online of like a constantly updated top five I get, curries I, I get the feeling there is a journal somewhere <laughs> like... <laughs> i do actually on my phone i do actually keep uh i have google keep notes and at all times i have this list available to me and it's my current, at the time of writing, top five video games, board games, movies, TV, and albums, and books. So It's, Im- it's important. But we did that today. Um, I've also been uh, playing Ghosts of Tsushima. Interesting, because there's been lots of buzz around Ghosts of Tsushima. Yes. Um, and it's just, I think we've all had it with, we've all had it at different times with different games, where you see the hype, you see all the clips, but for whatever reason, it just, doesn't appear you don't get what it is that's such the appeal and i kind of feel like that with ghost of shima because i know it's been hugely anticipated and don't get me wrong the visuals look stunning and it looks different to most kind of most of the games maybe it's kind of i've been burnt out on like open world games and stuff maybe that's what it is i gravitate towards more linear games that's why We've talked in recent kind of episodes around Last of Us. That's why I, I gravitate towards those games because it's more linear structure. And so it takes quite a lot for a, a, a more open game to kind of get me. Is, is that what it is kind of Ghost of Shima, a similar kind of open game to like the likes of your Assassin's Creed, your your Witchers, that kind of thing? Well, in, in staying in tradition, having played the first two or three hours, let me mm-hmm. now wax lyrical about why Ghost of Tsushima is currently better than any other open world game I've played. Um, so, let where to begin? I want to be quite brief because I haven't really played it for that long. and um, But at the moment, everything that it's doing is really impressing me. Um, because I kind of... I stopped playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey because of Last of Us Part 2 and then I didn't feel like I could go back to it because of all the bad stuff that happened. Yeah. Uh, Especially surrounding that particular game. And so I thought um, I was kind of ready for... I played Donut Country. County? Played Donut County. County. And that ended up being like the perfect antidote to... Such a good game. The Last of Us Part 2 malaise, as I'll call it, having... Uh, finished it um and so I, I was able to get ghost of shishima and it has made me realize all the things that i didn't like about assassin's creed odyssey the thing with ghost of shishima is the mongols are attacking the island of shishima and you are pretty much the last remaining samurai and you basically go on this vengeance quest to try and rescue your uncle who's been captured by uh, the Mongol leader. And in essence, what you're doing is recruiting people, sort of building a sort of magnificent Seven-esque style uh, group of um, uh, fighters and warriors to help you rescue your, your uncle. And the first thing that strikes you about the game is how how powerful you start off as a character and it's something that i've never really thought about in a game and it's definitely something that irked me whilst playing assassin's creed that i didn't realize until until i played ghost is that even though in assassin's creed you're meant to be this massive um powerful figure within the world and a well-renowned mercenary it still takes you about 20 hits to take down the simplest enemy 
and like reduce a health bar down down to zero. Whereas in Ghost of Tsushima, you're a samurai. So really, you're killing people in one strike. And really, the the technicality of the combat comes down to you actually timing that strike correctly. So the combat feels a lot more different in that way that you're playing a lot more of a reactive game and a lot more like sort of standing back, standing back, standing back, now making your strike and just taking down an enemy in one. There's no like health bars or like, oh, this is a level 19 enemy and you're only level eight. So it's going to take you half an hour to chip away. If you get the timing right on any enemy, you can pretty much cut them down in one fell swoop, which is a massive departure for me in terms of like how I feel as the player. Like I feel like a powerful samurai um, I was I was saying I was saying to Chris today. There's these wonderful moments where because it's against the samurai honor to be stealthy and to kill everyone and like be undetected, and the game does kind of do a bit of an awkward job into being like, yeah, well, you still can be stealthy, and he's kind of like, mm, but it's against my honor to be. But in this case, I have to be stealthy. Um, instead what you can do is you can walk up to the bandit camp press a button and do a standoff which is basically you approach this camp and you go like come on then come on then who's who's brave enough who's going to take me on the camera goes into like a letterbox framing it zooms around and puts you both into it so, suddenly you're in this like kurosawa like yes. standoff and it does this very very simple mechanic where you're just holding triangle and then as soon as your enemy attacks you've got to time it right so you lift your finger off triangle and you'll do one sweeping blade motion and cut down cut down your enemy and then (laughs) and then basically you watch all the other bandits like start to panic in fear and it's kind of like wonderfully strange in a way because you'll just be this guy you cut this guy down on the bridge and like the other day there were these bandits and there are these like two regular ones and one like sort of like beefy heavy with a massive spear and the two regular ones just started like pushing the guy with the big spear towards me and it's like go on go on you take him next you take him next and um that experience is really really addictive it's a reason why i love bloodborne so much because that um that combat loop where you're it's all about timing rather than aggression i find really really satisfying like in Bloodborne, you're waiting just at the right moment to hit them with a shot and then parry, and then you do more attack in that way. Ghost of Tsushima is just like that on a on a very sort of a, even more a bit more of a simplistic level, but it has that kind of satisfaction to go with it. The I'm currently playing it with Japanese subtitles on, subs not dubs, but it is it that filmic quality of it is is really it does really feel like I'm playing like a a, a Kurosawa like samurai. Uh, Japanese film. What is it about Kurosawa's visual motifs that 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 feels like it's being mimicked here? Like, because obviously Kurosawa was a, a huge part of what Kurosawa was about was the epic, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, seeing him, he managed to he ma- that. There's a scene in is it Rashomon where it just rains and rains and rains and rains. Yeah, like, and it just it is just so overwhelming. Like, like the, the the scale of 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 his work was just was astonishing is that yeah so of, there isn't yeah. uh, from what i played as, as of yet the scale is really isn't in the people as is as it is more in the environments that that right. you're in like right. dan what you're saying about the fact it looks amazing it actually has 
quite a heightened realism to it. Like it really feels like someone's just gone to the Japanese countryside and just turned up the contrast. Like <laughs> everything's like this bright, vivid, um, uh, like colors. And when you're walking through fields, like all you get is tons and tons of petals falling over you. That's like that's where the epicness comes from. Like everything is a painting like every corner you turn around like the sun is like streaming through bamboo trees and like scattering the countryside in these like wonderful like images and like there's fog like dancing across the top of the pampas grass and like as you're riding your horse through through this pampas grass you'll just lean down and start to like run your hand through it and the the amount of uh, effort that's gone into things like the particle effects and like the way like um, petals fall around you that like even just doing like simple tasks feel cinematic and they feel filmic. And I think there's a difference between like going through Assassin's Creed Odyssey and enjoying it because of that you're exploring an environment. Whereas in Ghost of Tsushima, I feel like I'm having... um, I'm 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 watching like I'm watching a film or having a, like more of like a, a media experience. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, mm. it 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 really like tingles that part of me that I feel like I'm I'm part of like a film or like actually directing like a scene rather than exploring a a beautiful environment. So yeah, it's 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 really really good. I'm I'm having a a lot of fun with it and really enjoying that it's. Um, does appreciate your time more so there's like a fog of war across the whole map so you kind of discover it as and when you feel like it and you want to and there's no like way markers you're directed by the wind so when you set a way marker the wind blows in the direction that you should be going and if you ever lose your way you just swipe up on the on the um on the touchpad and like a new gust of wind will come along and if if there's something interesting an animal will just start floating in front of you. And if you follow the animal, it will lead you to somewhere uh, like a point of interest, like a shrine or something you've got hmm. to go and uh, like a collectible that you've got to. Or if you see a fox, if you follow a fox, that will lead you to a, a fox shrine, which will give you a bit of... So everything about the world is kind of like imbued with this sense of trying to keep you keep you within it as long as possible, like keep you hmm. held in this state of like being part of this massive sort of filmic production it's good it's good and it's i'm making jealous making chris jealous by playing it so i mean i went to greece you did go to greece so yeah just in time that's that's his revenge yeah well yeah i mean i went before that and yeah it was extraordinary i did a partly inspired and because of my love of assassin's creed odyssey i (laughs) And yeah, my partner rolled her eyes when I told her that, that like my favorite parts of Assassin's Creed were like the islands and the Cyclades. And that's where we went. And we didn't go because of Assassin's Creed. It was coincidence, but it did, <laughs> it did imbue that trip with like an appreciation, I suppose, of its mythos. Like I went to mm-hmm. Santorini, which um, I didn't realize is where the myth of Atlantis stems from um, in part. The the only recollection we have of Atlantis in myth comes from Plato, and uh, that's that this entire kind of like mythical civilization, this lost city that vanished into the waves, is purported to be where Santorini was or next to it, because Santorini is on the edge of a, a caldera volcano, and this volcano when it blew its top, 
um, it was more powerful, I think, than the Krakatoa. And uh, soil um, or debris from it washed up on the shores of the UK. Um, it was that powerful. And uh, there is, you know, Plato talks about this civilization that once was there that was lost to the sea. And uh, yeah, um, I, in the spirit of it, I journeyed across the whole of the island on quad bike, which was, and I'm not mincing my words here, was basically a death trap on wheels. Uh, right, right. Hired this thing. Um, I never knew. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember what you were like when we did quad biking. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was in a muddy field for Pete's stag do, not stag do, birthday thing. Uh, this was on yeah. the open roads in Greece, going across the island, um, where... The health and safety was a bit lax. Like, to give you an example, I never knew what speed I was doing because the dial always showed zero. <laughs> I never knew how much fuel I had because it either showed that I had full tank, three quarters tank or zero, and it just fluctuated wildly. Brilliant. Uh, I pulled into a petrol station <laughs> and the guy who I'd hired it from gave it to me on fumes, basically. He says, oh, you need to go and fill this up, which usually when you hire a vehicle, you get it with at least three quarters of a tank, maybe. But I had nothing, so I had to find a petrol station. And I just pulled over to this petrol station, which the, the bloke had directed me to. And I'd been assured that the guy would fill up my tank for me, which he did. But he, I think he kind of put like a fag out and walked over, <laughs> undid the cap, Bearing in mind, the fuel tank is right between my legs and he undoes it and it just like, I'm just looking at the fuel tank here. You know, any naked flame and he dropped in there, that's it. I've lost, well, the bottom half of my body basically. Fills it up and off I go. And uh, just extraordinary, like golden beaches, some of the most incredible seafood in my life, wine tasting, uh, and just the island hopping thing I loved, we did. Um, uh, Santorini, we saw this incredible sunset from a car park because uh, um, my partner had a nap and uh, we just made it there. And also this quad bike was a bit of a death trap because um, I forgot to mention the lights didn't really work. And uh, <laughs> leaving at night pitch dark where you're waiting for cars to come behind you because you're using their headlights to shine the way in front of you. Um, uh, you know, you don't really want to take your chances when you're going on those very treacherous mountain roads. Um, but just extraordinary. And going to Paros and Antiparos and then Mykonos, which is essentially like full of Instagram influences in the summer where it's just people taking selfies. But for the first time in my life, I got lost, truly lost. We got literally well, trapped. Well, well, no, well, hold on uh, a second. Uh, yeah, yeah let's, let's, <laughs> let's dig into that a little bit. Um, I can think of two occasions. Are, are we, are we yeah. at a point now where we can just put footnotes in to, like, you know, whoever's editing this will just do a little voiceover. Please see episode. Yeah. Yeah, I know you're alluding to the point where we slightly went off course when we went up Snowden for my 30th. Slightly. And Scarf Our Pike. And then Scarf Our Pike. And didn't we get lost in York as well? For my yeah, stag we did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did. But yeah. what an adventure. But we got lost. But yeah, yeah. so this was one of many times you've been lost. Yeah. Go on. But like yeah. truly lost, Pete. Like we, 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 it was like you seemed, like honestly, we kept walking and circling the same places. We go, how is this possible? It's like a small little village that we're in. Yeah. How? And because the walls are so tightly closed together and they're all kind of white, um, kind of whitewashed and and things. Yeah, uh, it was just extraordinary. Um, mm. absolutely incredible place. I can highly recommend it. And and surprisingly populous with a but but in a strange way a kind of an eerie calm in certain places. We because of the current climate we're in, mm. and I'm I'm you know I'm not. 
I'm not um, kind of like playing down how lucky I was to be able to travel and to be able to make it into the country because a very strict process of, mm. you know, you know, testing and all that, you know, I did, we didn't know if we'd get there and we don't, we'd, we'd have to be expected to stay in a hotel for two weeks and not leave um, and stuff. So it was, it was a bit of a gamble, but um, it was extraordinary, um, absolutely extraordinary. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to going to Tsushima next year um, where um, <laughs> instead of using a map, I'll just follow the animals and the wind. Follow the wind. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I will say this. Actually, uh, Sam and I did an escape room the other night. Oh, yes, we did. Yeah. We like, did. So, we, you know, when I say escape room, we were on our feet in a room, yeah. moving about it. Yeah. And I hear you thinking, how is that possible? Because as we know, as we talked about in previous episodes, escape rooms are one of those businesses that sadly has struggled because of COVID with many of them moving online. And we talked about all those great uh, online escape rooms that you can do, some free, some paid. Yeah. Um, this was um, a game called um, Trapped. Uh, Trapped Escape Room Game Packs. And this one's called The Art Heist. Okay. And uh, it comes in this lovely little um, cardboard um, packet slash um, bag. And um, everything is in this box. There are no apps. Uh, there's no sitting around a table, although I will get onto a bit how we and how we solve this eventually. Um, <laughs> it comes with a whole series of um, items. And on the back of those items, it tells you how to stage manage it, how to position it in a room. Mm -hmm. So you will get an item and it'll say, put this on a coffee table, or you'll get something that looks like a keypad with a little hanger on the top. And it says, hang this on the door you want to escape from. Um, and it comes with um, semi-adhesive strips to stick stuff on walls. And there was something quite lovely about us all set dressing yeah. the, the escape room mm -hmm. and that feeling of, gosh, this is what it must be like when you're um, running your own escape room, thinking very carefully, oh, if I put this here, that looks quite cool because th this particular one that was sent to us um, by the Fantastic Factory, uh, the Fantastic Factory sent us this. Um, what I like about that is that you you make certain decisions about where you position things, but but also because you want to fit into the theme of it. So we were thinking, weren't we, Sam, about, okay, let's make this thing like an art gallery. We spent a while thinking, okay, we've got these paintings. Where's the best place in our li your living room to make it feel like an art gallery? So so one so one of the ones was, as you said, like we had like the do not disturb style-esque style hanger that we put on my living room door. Is that, that was like our escape panel. And then above the light switch was a little like fire escape sign. So we put that above above the light switch. So it felt like immediately like we were in some sort of officially sanctioned health and safety environment. It was it was part part of it for me was it was great just like wandering around with these like little bits of paper and card and like because it was because it was in uh, an art gallery and they were having um, like this gala event. Yeah, like it yeah, was an like, exhibition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were like putting like invitations on coffee tables and like putting notes and like almost like discarded napkins on windowsills. It was really it like dressing it was like felt like part this is part of the experience yeah. like making your room feel like this other 
this other room in another in another world. And we could and we dressed ourselves a little bit because it came. Yeah, we with, did. Yeah. And and every game that they do in this series, and there's there's a couple others that I found. They come with little bits of props just to add that little bit of spice there, a little bit of you know a little bit of a touch there. It's not like when you're in a murder mystery. Oh, it's set in the 1930s. I better go to the charity shop and buy a feather boa or something like that. We just had little name badges that clipped on. And suddenly we're employees of this art gallery and we had our name. We had how long we've been working in the company for this kind of stuff. And that's quite lovely because like the beautiful thing about those kinesthetic escape rooms where you're on your feet is that you've instantly got blind spots, which you don't have when everything's on the table in front of you. And quite often we were thinking, oh gosh, did we get everything down? Because, you know... Sam's Sam's living room is a normal living room. It's not like a sparse, minimal, you know, white, you know, empty white box studio space like in the Tate. So, mm. you know, quite easily we could have lost stuff, particularly if we felt we dressed it so well that everything blended in. Like I stuck one six by four picture over an already existing six by four picture that they had in a frame. And in the corner of your eye, you wouldn't spot that. And it does those things that escape rooms do where you have to go around, you have to solve the clues and find the code. But Unlike an app or um, unlike an escape room where if you're struggling, you just go to the app and you go for the clues or the hints, or usually in the escape room, we all just stand in the corner and just wave at the camera for a hint. (laughs) You don't have that here. What you have is a really lovely old school thing where you've got a code book and it's full of words, these random connections of words. And then you have this kind of code breaker, which is just a simple piece of um, card that has apertures cut into it. And when you put it over a particular number, um, as allocated on the back of the particular card when it says this clue, instantaneously you get those a series of words that become a kind of a sentence or half of the clue. So it's a very quick way of just getting that hint system where you don't have to go into an app. If the Wi-Fi had gone down in Sam's place, we could have still played it. If he had no power, we still could have played it. If we'd gone camping, we still could have played this game. And it's reusable. And there was just something quite lovely about you can make it as thematic as you want to be. You could go the whole hog. I could say, okay, Sam, Lisa, because Lisa did it with us, wait outside. I'm going to address everything. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put on some art gallery heist music. It's a very niche playlist from Spotify. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm going to do everything for you, and I'm here with the ground rules. I'm going to treat it like an escape room. Don't remove anything. Leave everything where it is, stuck to walls, that kind of stuff, and then leave them to do it. And that'd be quite nice, you know. Mm. And But what we did... Chris can then go have a nap or something like that. Well, no, like what we did was quite interesting because it trusts you to time yourself, like a lot of these escape room games. And at the end, based on the number of players, um, sorry, not based on the number of players, based on the number of clues you access and how long it takes you, you get certain points. But it's quite interesting that we weren't that strict with ourselves in terms of house rules because the game's not strict. It wants you to have fun. It wants you to interpret it and enjoy it how you want to. And what happened was that slowly but surely, after a few minutes, we started taking everything down and it slowly migrated its way <laughs> to the table. Ah. Um, so we essentially recreated that tabletop escape room experience. And that's quite interesting because we solved the puzzle in 25 minutes. Now, admittedly, this particular one, Art Heist, is pitched as a medium in terms of difficulty. There is a hard right. one, which is the bank job, which I would be really interested in playing. But I think a lot of that ease by which we found it was because we had everything in front of us we had no blind spots i could literally pass stuff across to sam or to lisa across the table and we had our notepad there 
um and it was a lot easier it wasn't like you know the escape rooms we've done in the past where one of us is one bit with their hand on a button and they can't take it off it the others through the doorway in another room describing stuff mm -hmm. they see and a third person is just seeing calling out the, the numbers they see on the screen to match what's being pressed there we weren't all in separate places so i think that no, I think if you want to get a game like this, you should embrace that kinesthetic aspect of it, of moving around the room and, yeah. you know, forgetting clues are there and go, oh my gosh, yes, we didn't think of this. Yes, yes, yes. Well done. Good, 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 good. I think that the fact of like making the space become something and like making your kitchen become like a bank vault or an art gallery is exceptionally imaginative and i can imagine that like if you've got young kids um this is just a a really good idea to kind of like instead of saying to a child you know right we're gonna sit at the table now for an hour plus while we yeah. try and break this don't worry we're going to have fun it's more like Oh, look look around the kitchen. Can you see anything different? Can yeah. you see anything new that we've put there? Like that that how it would like spark the imagination in someone a lot younger. Like a, and like even, a kids' party or something. Yeah. And, yeah and I think that even though we found it quite simple, we all were like, Well, we really enjoyed it. Yeah, we like, really we did. We really did. We really like enjoyed like just wandering around my living room, like finding things, picking yeah. up stuff, discovering like how all of this like connected into each other yeah and i think also if if i was to set it up for you and lisa sam i would mm -hmm. be a bit mischievous i'd hide stuff in stuff so it becomes yes. as much a treasure hunter as an escape room mm -hmm. and it is a family game it says on the box it's pitched at families aged eight and up yeah and there are different difficulties and i quite like the fact there's that little bit of different um um different components it's not just the same kind of clues repeated that from what i can get so for example in the carnival escape room that they do which is the easiest one you get like a little duck hunt thing like when you're shooting at the fair and they're on these little stands and there's a puzzle there to be solved with them say for example and it didn't feel like one of us was quarterbacking we were all on our own doing our own bits of solving the puzzle and then swapping with each other and i all felt that we all pitched in and we all solved it together which was really nice table that that chris was speaking about has a lot to answer for well what that sounds very threatening to your table well well let, let's just say that um is this is this your is this your new uh family slash gaming table yes you can <laughs> so, prioritize one of those words in front of the other if I you mean, wish it is a table it is a table and i cannot confirm neither deny the the reason that we bought that table was specifically to play one game and it's since put us back around 500 pounds hooray <laughs> yeah. um because we were playing um I, w I was teaching well lisa and i my wife uh we were playing the um the game sabotage um which we were kindly sent by flowers uh um, games is this is this the one where you have a bunch of cards and you have to figure out who the sabotager is? No. I really like how Pete kind of condenses games down in the most kind of eloquent way. Is yes. that the one with a bunch of cards? <laughs> <laughs> He's a man of the people. Yeah. <laughs> 
We're not going to be getting on anyone's boxes anytime soon with strap no. ones, are we? <laughs> so Sabotage is um, by uh, Tim Fowers and Jeff okay. Krause and art, as ever, by Ryan Goldsberry. I mean, if you... If you if you've seen a Tim Fowers game before, you'll know like what the art style looks like, and um, it's very interesting for a game from especially um, Tim, in that um, Chris has interviewed him. I feel like we're on first name terms. We're, we're, we're pals now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm glad that you've actually been speaking to him, Sam, because I made it a fool of myself. I I, I literally gushed and fanboyed over Tim Fowers <laughs> in an interview with We're Not Wizards on their podcast, which wasn't edited sensitively whatsoever. I just come across... <laughs> I, just oh, come, I just come across as this utter fanboy. Rich too, just absolutely stitched you up like yeah, a kid. He did, he really it. did. Like, we talked about Ryan Knizia, like last time. Like, for me, Tim Fowers was the first name... Right. of board gaming that I was associated, right. I became aware of his games and mm. I just I adore Burger Brothers and yeah. what I really the first thing I, I said when I sat down with Sam was like, oh my gosh this is like this, this feels like it's in the Burger Brothers universe yeah it, it, it does but in, in a way it's not in the universe is that if you were to collect all of um, Tim Fowles' game on a shelf mm. and sort of um find one way of summing them all up is you probably use the word something like economical or um appreciative of space in that he has always been someone who designs um boxes that are um very easy to like put on a shelf and like the burgle brothers box like every time i open it i always forget how stuffed it is and it literally just explodes with like tokens and wooden mm. bits and like everything he not only his games, but ev- but how they're packaged and how they're designed, like the amount of detail that he, he puts into that is like, there is no wasted space. Like, for nice. example, um, paperback I've got um, is like comes in this box. And at first, like the cards don't all fit in. You think, oh, it's a bit of wasted space. But if you sleeve them all, the box is exactly the perfect it's size. It's incredible that it needs to be mm. like he's wonderful in that regard so the maricondo of board gaming <laughs> exactly so then on my doorstep lands sabotage which is this huge box like it is nothing like you would have seen from like tim Fowers before like in terms of box size it's like brew crafters big like it Whoa, is like really? euro game yeah it's the size of your average toolbox wow yeah. <laughs> and and it also opens up like a toolbox but the thing is and this is like the genius in in like his sort of design is there's a reason why this box is so big because this is a hidden movement game essentially and i think we've all played a hidden movement play like white chapel possibly we've all played that one um and the idea of hidden movement games is it's usually one person is playing a character. So for in Whitechapel, you're you're playing Jack the Ripper, and no other, none of the other players know where that where that player is at that current time. So they're effectively trying to hunt down and guess where that player is before they like commit murders. However, in Sabotage, you're playing this hidden movement game where one team's the spies and one team's the uh, villains. And the spies are trying to disable the doomsday machines and the villains are trying to basically knock out and hit the spies. But in order to keep that movement hidden from everyone, 
you use the box as a screen. So the box unfolds, it like ah. peel, peels open and like an envelope and basically becomes this wonderfully decorated screen that sits between the two teams. So you can't see what you're doing on each side of the... Of the uh... So does it kind of uh, screen it like you've got like Captain Sonar does, that kind of... Yes. So, but unlike Captain Sonar which essentially is just a couple of sheets, a couple of dry white pens, and the rest of the box is filled with this massive game board. Instead, the box is the becomes the screen. And then inside the rest of the box, you have um, these trays made by game trays, which essentially hold all the components that the spies would need. So you lift this tray out of the box and you hand it to the spies. And then there's another tray in there, which is um, sort, of, sort of identical, has a few different tokens in it. And you lift that tray out and you hand that to the villains and that's all the things that they'll need to start playing this game. And it is a exceptionally smart piece of like board gaming designs. So... Um, I've played this, um, which is also quite rare for me, pretty much every way it can be played. So I've played it on my own. They developed an app for it, which simulates half of the half of the encounters. So you play as a spies and the app, and the app simulates the villains uh, doing all their stuff, trying to stop you as you're like these spies coming in and, and hacking around. And I've played it as a two-player cooperatively. So that, that the aforementioned story, me and my wife were playing it on the table and we both turned to each other and went, this table is not going to be big enough to get four people around plus this game. This is a lot of game. But, my wife yeah. knows me very well. and She knows the buttons that she needs to push to get me to buy things for the house. <laughs> um, and we've also, uh, I've also played this as a, a two-player but... Um, competitive so me and chris have played it spies versus villains and then as a four player as well so four people all sat around my massive table um and it is it's a it feels like a real treat to play and i mean that in possibly like the confectionery sense of it like the terms like like sitting down and enjoying a big bar of chocolate like is a treat yeah like something that you know is slightly overindulgent but yet Mm. in every single way it's been designed to stimulate the right parts of you Mm. like that's what sabotage feels like like very simply you you've each got the same map you roll dice one player rolls dice and then everyone turns their dice to the same numbers and then you uh, both the spies and villains will then program their actions of what they're going to do that turn. And, uh, and certain actions require certain dice rolls. And that's essentially the game. Like the villains will take their turn, hidden from the spies, trying to hunt down and find out where the spies are, like zapping squares, hoping that there'll be people in them. Whereas the spies move around trying to locate where the villains are at and, and discover them. And also reach the doomsday uh, machines to try and hack them and override them and um, sort of disable them so the villains can't do their uh, sort of dastardly plans. And yeah, it's a real treat. Uh, I think both Chris and I really enjoy, <laughs> enjoyed it. I, I, I um, honestly, I, I love it because hidden movement as a genre is one that I, I always look forward to playing it, but I've never really played enough of them that I've enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and partly that's because 
it's often mismatched in terms of the numbers. It's often like one against four or four against one. I'm thinking of Spectre Ops. I'm thinking of Letters from Whitechapel. I'm or think- there's one role that everyone wants to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and the rest of the table are just like, well, I we guess we're just hunting and them down then, are we? Right. Currently, my favorite one is Escape from the Aliens in Outer Space. Uh, but that's using cards and that, that just captures that lovely theme of aliens. What I love about this game is it's 2v2 and the use of the dice, the fact that everyone is working with the same dice results that is crucial for yeah. me because i've i also own hunt for the ring which is lord of the rings hidden movement game which has got too much in it mechanically for a hidden movement game and it just gets in the way of the fun and the theme of it this doesn't do that the fact that i know sam knows what dice i'm working with i know what dice he's working with and i also have a list of the actions that he has he has a list of the actions that i can do that's really lovely and i like some of the, the agony of not knowing what to choose that analysis paralysis has been taken away from me because it's determined by the dice. I can't feel bad if Sam's found me because I just didn't have the dice that go. It's not that I did mm-hmm. anything wrong. It's just mm-hmm. the dice weren't there for me. And you've got this lovely board where the tiles slot in. And I don't know what it is. It's just, it, it's just that sensation of doing it. Being able to slot stuff in means every time when you take it out, you don't feel that bad because you get the satisfaction again of slotting it in, <laughs> the dice slot in. I Ooh. love the fact you, you spoke about that, which is like, Oh, you know, because you, you get these you get these boards which represent your character, and like as you're programming in your moves, because um, the idea is is that you can't, if the villains are trying to hunt you down, you essentially can't. Then it stops you like changing your actions in response to that. Sure, like yeah. you have to program. I am moving left this turn, and because the villains move before the spies, if the villains like moving in front of you, you can't suddenly go. Oh well, now I'm moving up. Sorry, sorry. Now, so everything's programmed. So, so you slot you slot these tiles in quite satisfactorily into these like little indented boards, and everything feels very like purposeful when you when you do it. Like, and it always felt close, Sam. Like, yeah, I, you know, suddenly Sam would go, "Oh, cool. Here's your modifier cube." And go, "Oh, great. I've got a modifier cube. Brilliant. Oh, because this happened and this happened. Oh, brilliant. Oh, great." And it's just honestly i was really skeptical because i really like mm-hmm. as sam said that compacted quality the neatness of Fowers games everything from now boarding to paperback and burger brothers and he really likes to dabble in different genres but this was just great yeah. it just it, really it, was great never felt excessive either I've been um, obviously continuing the uh, inspiration what Dan gave me. All right, what do you do this time? Well, Dan just Dan just seems to be my muse. What did I know, do? I don't even remember doing this. Me the inco- do you keep him? Do you keep him locked in the attic? I try to. Um, so why can't? They- so I've got nothing to do. He just lets me out <laughs> to the garden once a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, just you know, encouraging me to 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 do the RPG stuff and um and, and, all, right, all, that, and all that good stuff. We've all been playing um basic fantasy role playing game, uh, which sounds very dull, but is actually very good. Uh, <laughs> it's like one of the best games with the worst names. Um and um yeah, I've been um so so we we just came to the end of our little session that we've that we've done and we've sort of got to the end of our campaign and I I I've been um tinkering around. With um, I've making I've been I've been making maps and I, I mean, I've been, and this is what excites me about GMing. Pete, yeah, is yeah. map making. Map making. It's it's honestly I've got two pieces of software actually that I've been tinkering around with, but the one that really got me got my juices 
<laughs> blowing. Your cartographer juices. My cartographer juices. <laughs> um, it's something called Hexkit. Um, and it's uh, it's this thing. Uh, it's a piece of software by uh, um, a company called Cone of Negative Energy, and um, it's really nice. It's a really it's a it's a it's a piece of well, I've talked about this before, but m- the most terrifying thing to me, I hate it, hate it, hate it, is a blank page. Can't stand a blank page. If you give me like every single color under the sun and a blank piece of paper i'll just freeze because i just i'm just like oh oh i i I could do anything so i won't do anything um enter dan enter dan and sim saying you should you should you know go you know you you can create your own stories and stuff like that this was back years ago when we we were talking about um when we were running um that small little rpg um oh which one was it it was dread wasn't it yeah yeah that was um, that was where you said you had no imagination. I had no imagination, and I think I think it is true to some degree. I've been I've been I've been thinking a lot about imagination and and where it comes from. Um, and um, I recently finished um, a book called Freedom Regained by Julian Beghini, and it's all about free will and whether or not we have it. Um, but one of the sections is about where does inspiration come from? Like where do we actually get? How do we? How do things inspire us? How do we move? How like where does that? Where can that possibly come from? Mm. And um, one of the things I've found uh, through reading that and through other bits and pieces is that I I get a different kind of inspiration of like, <clears throat> I'm very iterative. Like, I always think that creativity comes from this space of, I will sit here and stare at this blank wall and then I will, in my mind, I will create the perfect thing and then I will and then I will jot down what that perfect thing is in through art or through writing or through whatever it is that, that you can do. And actually, it turns out that and some people do work like that, but a lot of people don't work like that. A lot of people work through just trying something and it's rubbish. And that, but there's a, a core of something interesting and then they rework it and rework it and rework it and rework mm-hmm. it. And then it's halfway decent. Um, and there was a lot of uh, talk about that and where that creativity comes from. And for me, one of the things that I find is I need a jumping off point. And this hex kit has been exactly that. So we've been running this this campaign and I'm being very careful with my words because obviously you guys don't know what's coming next. But we've been in, we've been fighting a lot of goblins. Dan has been rocking up very late and then falling into pits because uh, his, because uh, I his, think you're fine. Because his quote, unquote, I didn't fall into any oh, pits. Oh, that's true actually. Yeah, nearly falling into pits, diving out of the way of pits falling. Um, I, I mean, I would say spectacularly diving out of the way. Beautifully done. Um, I, absolutely. Uh, I've been thinking about how RPGs, specifically OSR games, are kind of a survival horror. Like how they're kind of a, they're kind of like, you have to outthink the dungeon, but more in a kind of, it is actually quite bloodthirsty. But anyway, so um, all of these things are happening, and I've been kind of, because you've been in dungeons and you've been also in the ta- you know the classic tavern, the uh, the the eternal rest uh, tavern. I've been thinking about how all of this stuff like fits together, and um, trying to make it into this this campaign. And um, the thing I did was I fired up hex kit. And it gives you so it's basically um, it gives you hexagons on a map, and you can you know change customize how big this map is and all that sort of stuff. And then you get these preset tiles, and then you basically like paint with these tiles across these hexes, right? Um, and they are just detailed enough 
so that you look at the tile and you know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. But they're abstract enough to the point that they aren't they aren't exactly so precisely telling you exactly what they are so that there's still then room for creativity so i've had my my uh, my on my second screen i've i've had a google doc open and on my first screen i've had hex kit and i've been like painting with this and creating these hex maps and um and this is for the overworld i should say um specifically um and in this overworld, I'm able to paint like, oh, I'm going to put a forest here. And oh, I can put hill like grasslands here and hills here. And here's where a ruined castle is. So how does that, so does that help you as like, because obviously there, you know, being a, being a role-playing game, the chances of us visiting Any of the forest stuff. or the ruins yep. or probably like low, less than 10% chance of probably ever, ever visiting that. Yep. So like... As someone who has previously said struggles imagining, yeah. like I guess that if you're able to press a button and say, "Oh, there's a ruins there," yeah. that is kind of doing some of the heavy work for you in terms of like building the world that we're trying to exist in. Because then you can go, "Well, why is that ruins? Why is it there?" Yeah. So, so it digs into the creative part of me that I actually find interesting, right? So, I can't draw for toffee. I, I can't. No. I. I I'm so bad at drawing, like upsettingly. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, 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 like to the point of like, if you saw one of my drawings and it was maybe associated with a lunatic from a Lovecraft novel, you'd think, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that is what they would draw. Um, that's that's the scrawl of some psychopath on <laughs> yeah. their cell yeah. wall. Uh, like, yeah, uh, like uh, it's very, uh, it's very, yeah. So it so it takes that element away from me. But the creativity that I like is the is the world building aspect of like, why is there a castle here? Like mm-hmm. what what, yeah. what what are they like why have we why have in the dungeons that we've been in so far, why have the enemies that we've been up against, why are the creatures that we've been up against, why have they been there? Like what is it about the world that has led yeah. to this point? Like I find it so it's just that shortcut to to the creative bit that I really really like. I I I think it's it seems just like kind of like a almost like an inspiration generator. Yeah. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. um I remember when we when we the first one we did was Dread back in the day and I ran that one so I, and I decided to come up with like an original story and I struggled with it. I can't remember where it, where the original inspiration came from. I I ended up doing an alien thing on a spaceship oh yeah um, oh. and i don't remember well, where exactly where does the inspiration for that come from i wonder i don't know i don't remember <laughs> what made me want to do that but once sure. i got the idea of a spaceship yeah suddenly okay with well, a spaceship it's going to probably be an alien okay now i've got an alien on a spaceship what's yeah. the next step my next thought was okay then why are these why have i got three people who don't know each other on this ship yeah and then yeah. that builds and it builds and it just layers on top of it but i wouldn't get any of that without that original idea of the spaceship. So it sounds like for this, what you've got here is something that's generating that base level that you can build on. And obviously, you don't the fact that you've got a forest doesn't doesn't mean there's a castle there, but because there is the forest, you think, "Oh, I could I could put a castle around here." Yeah. And now there's a castle here. Oh, there also could be ruins, and it just feeds off as a And it and it also goes deeper. It goes into the like what's in the forest? Who uses the forest? Yeah. What what are the trees in the forest? Are they like 
can like are they just like you know you know a few oaks or is this a living forest like is it is it um is it a bandit hideout like like all yeah. of these or, and and you really you think about these things and it really is a like it really forces you to actually having the role playing game set and having got done a couple of adventures now that was enough to be the point where i was like i'm going to you know put this together and write this and all that sort of stuff because it is it's something i've been writing i've been right tinkering around with playing and playing with like creating rpgs and stuff like that. i've had a lot of ideas beforehand but what i wanted to do was find the right role playing game for us and then um and then figure out how i could then build out a story based on that but pete what you're saying it reminds me like i'm doing a lot of research at the moment part of my job in terms of narratives and worlds and particularly maps and I've come across that expression of Tolkien's mountains, where if you look at, if you open Lord of the Rings, you've got landmarks and landscapes there and places which you never, ever go to. And they're an example of what is called um, extra, di extra diegetic maps, they're called extra diegetic oh, okay. maps. So that is parts of a map that you never encounter, but they're there because they help with that story world building. Mm -hmm. It's only when you encounter them that they become intradiegetic. And you hear those stories where people would draw islands on maps to encourage people to go and explore, even if there was nothing there. I mean, I mentioned earlier about Atlantis. What is that but an example of something that is extra diegetic? Yeah. It's not about going and finding Atlantis. It's about that desire to want to go and find it. And it makes you feel like you're in... And a lot of this world. stuff is very. Um, so we, I've, I've done a, a bit of writing, um, a fair bit of writing for for video games and stuff like that. And and one of the things that we that um, uh, uh, a lot of the stuff that works really well is is this thing called Dora Jar narrative, where it kind of uses that idea of if you place a mountain somewhere and you give it a name, suddenly then you're you you open the door just enough for a player to go, what's that? And and you you probably don't know, and and the thing with RPGs I've found so far is that that's the same, right? Like there have been moments in the stories that we've been running so far where you've been like, oh, uh, like oh, what's this about? Or like, why is that there? And like I've I've sat there and gone, hmm, I wonder what it could be about. And I've been <laughs> sat there like, I wonder what it could be about because oh I'm, my god, I'm, um, uh, uh... it could be anything. But then there's that there's that thing, and you and and like like you you give you give your players just enough to the point where it's like we're gonna go and have a look and yeah. you're like great let's figure out what this thing is then like and it's really exciting and that's part of that again it's part of that nice balance of that again this hex kit really like leans into of giving you just enough information with which to be inspired to then take you on and and let you do more creativity more inspiration and more um and actually make something that is like really fulfilling for you it's maps and for me it's maps but it's also music so when we're doing the rpg i have spotify in the background in my ears so do you yes what? i do i listen to something that's kind of like I, I listen to something that's thematic it's not like i'm listening to a podcast and i've got you on mute oh, so, oh, so right. this is why when you did the recap you had no idea why I was anything say, was happening because you're like we're in the middle of a fight you know you know this is true we're in the middle of we're in the middle of a fight scene and i put there's a there's a playlist on spotify which is like um fantasy board gaming and i had it on shuffle but for some weird reason, just at one point, like, you know, I didn't realize this, but Spotify, when it gets to the end of a playlist, it just picks another playlist. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly I had Waterloo from ABBA in my ears <laughs> when we were in this storming in, 
this this <laughs> storming this um mine with all these hobgoblins and goblins and it just felt right and uh, <laughs> i left uh, it on that's funny amazing um oh. i i text i i text my wife about about the eggs about the eggs oh thing. yeah yeah uh i said uh cuz she cuz she pointed out that like, i mentioned that Pete may have had a response from the eggs council so she said keep your phone on you i want you i want you to tell me as soon as you know what the egg council has said okay yeah okay um just before i start dan you're editing this show um this week how good are you with the bleep button <laughs> let's find out <laughs> let's find out so i i text her i said eggs should be kept in in box and in fridge. Mm. The British Egg Council say so. Her reply. No way. F*** that. I said, it's official. Then she said, when baking, eggs need to be at room temperature. So you'd have to wait ages to make a cake. And they would crack when you boil. This is madness. <laughs> we eat eggs not in the fridge all the time and we are fine. Not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word. <laughs> Oh, I feel, I feel, I feel like somebody else is going to be writing a letter to the egg council. <laughs> Dear Sarah, <laughs> hello, Dan Frost. There, haven't done this in a while. Um, that was staying in with obviously me, Dan Frost, Sam Turner, Chris Darby, and of course Peter Willington. Thanks for checking out the show, and if you like what you heard, please, please go ahead and subscribe, stick a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also, tell your friends, family, colleagues, or just people you pass on the street if you are so inclined. Uh, You can also still find our board game food pairing video on YouTube, and you can check out our specially cultivated tea-themed playlists on spotify just search for staying in and select see all profiles and you'll find all that wonderful content waiting for you as always you can check us out on twitter facebook and instagram and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode for you so until then goodbye